Welcome to Realising Your Potential, a leadership podcast from Accolade Wines. Accolade Wines is a leading global wine company with famous wine brands loved and trusted around the world, including Hardy's, St. Hallett, Grand Berge, Banrock Station, House of Arras and Echo Falls. The show was originally recorded for our people as a learning and development tool, but due to popular demand, it is now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts and many more. If you would like to contribute, ask questions, or just share some comments, please get in touch with Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Ange Murphy, Chief People and Communications Officer. In this second series, I speak to some fantastic guests from our external networks who share their personal journeys, leadership tips and advice as we continue to build our high-performance culture. In this episode, I speak with leadership consultant Rod Matthews. Rod believes that one of the best tools we have to lead in complex environments is conversation. He also says there is no greater stage for a leader than the one we are on right now. And by adopting a mindset that's curious, committed and engaged, we can continuously grow and learn. I really enjoyed my conversation with Rod and I hope you do too. So let's get started. Rod Matthews, welcome to the Accolade Wines podcast series. Really lovely to have you along. We're going to talk about eight conversations today, but a range of other things. So welcome. And I always ask our guests to kick off with telling us a little bit about yourself and your career. Thanks, Ange. Thanks very much for asking me along. Um, Really nice to be able to talk uh, um, about this stuff that I think is really important. I love talking about, uh, but I I love talking about it because I really believe it has value. So yeah, I've been working in and around leaders and leadership teams for, oh, crikey, over 20 years now. Most of the time, it tends to start with, um, uh, we work on this idea of concentric circles. So the first port of call is your own safety. If you're in a fire and you're not safe, you're of no use to anyone else, right? First port of call is your own safety. Then you're in a position to look to your team's safety. Is my team okay? Where are they? Then you're in a position to look to the public safety and then you can worry about property. Um, and I quite like that because that's sort of the way that we work with leaders and leadership teams is, first of all, as we ask leaders to look at themselves, <laughs> you know, an organisation cannot grow beyond the level of its leaders, um, and so leaders need to keep growing. But then secondly, there's an element there about executive team being the first allegiance because often what happens is you get people reporting to come together as part of this leadership or management team and they feel as though they need to represent the team that reports to them at this group. And, of course, if they do that, we end up fighting over a diminishing pile of resources. Whereas if we make that team, that leadership team, the exec team, that management team, our first allegiance, then once we've worked out what needs to happen, I can be a lot clearer when I go back to my team. And that requires a bit of a mindset shift. And so we tend to work with teams doing that. Um, And then once they've made those two shifts, they're in a better position to be able to look at strategic issues and have things flow down to the next levels. What was it about leadership development that made you want to pursue it as a full-time career? I'd say I probably started in history at school, to be quite honest. You know, there's this, the school version of history is very much 
um, in some respects, a romantic view of history. Um, you know, it's about these um, important people who held sway and they were able to do stuff and they had access to resources and they made decisions. And I, I had a really good history teacher that engaged me in that. So I, I probably, um, first of all, got interested in there. Then I think what happened is I wasn't the easiest person to manage, to be quite honest, Ange. <laughs> when I first started work, I think I was probably more interested in, you know, having fun with friends and socialising and, uh, and so wasn't probably the most productive person at work. And I noticed after a while that some leaders then sideline you and others engage with you. And it was those that engaged with me that I think actually I did my best work for. Um, uh, and so I think it was through that experience of being a team member and what it's like to work with people who really have an ability to get you engaged that got me curious about that sort of stuff. You talk about history and history at school. Who are some of the leaders in history that you really admire? Do you know, I think everyone's got their something. Ah. So um, uh, it's difficult to say that one person was like the ultimate and everyone else, you know, or, or one person was totally devoid of any value in terms of learning. For example, <laughs> weird as it may sound, Genghis Khan. Mm, right? Fascinating. Now, I wouldn't have thought that was the first on the list. A European, because we have a very European-centric version of history, we get told the whole thing that this guy was a real threat. He was coming from the east and he was start moving towards European cities and he got really close. He got to Austria. Was it Vienna? I think he ended up, got pretty close to Vienna and they probably would have taken it had um, someone not died and they had to go back and have a big council about who was going to take that person's place. But the thing about that is interesting about Genghis Khan is that he was one of the first leaders to really exploit meritocracy. Mm. So prior to him, most of the, uh, your allegiances were to your family. But his family, his father passed away, and so his tribe dumped him and his brothers and his mum, and they had to fend for themselves. And so when another tribe came along later on and picked them up and, and sort of looked after them, he started to learn that there's, uh, there's a difference between uh, a family and meritocracy. And he, he was one of the first leaders to, to bring that along. So right. everyone's got their something. Well, and Winston Churchill is another one. I do very much admire Winston Churchill, but mm. when wars were not on, he was not that good. He had trouble balancing a budget. He fa found it very difficult to um, lead people when there wasn't a crisis. Mm. You know, I've worked with leaders as well, though, who have purposely said they need to have an enemy. And that's the words that they've used, yeah? So whether or not it's the competitor or whoever yeah they use that as their enemy and they've got something to go after I think is kind of what they're trying to say yeah and, and I think I suspect there's something there too about uniting against a mm. common foe and I think 100% touch of this with COVID you know COVID was the enemy <laughs> and so we had uh, many organizations uh, came together in ways that some clients are still sort of going can we bottle that? Mm, <laughs> you know, yes. what happened there? How can we make that happen more often? Um, and I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I suspect it's got something to do with your common enemy. 
you talked about when you were you were at work, you liked it more for socialising than actually being productive. What was the difference between those leaders who invested in you versus the ones who kind of said, well, you're not of any benefit to me, therefore I'm just going to kind of overlook you? One of the clear things that, I, um, uh, that stuck out about that for me was that some leaders, I think, have an ability to move towards the friction and some leaders want to move away from the friction. And I get it. It's a perfectly understandable human trait to want to avoid difficult situations, difficult people, difficult conversations. And so rather than have those difficult conversations with difficult people about difficult situations, they would just avoid. Mm. Um, as opposed to the people who would sit down and have the conversation with you and basically hold up a mirror <laughs> and say, here's what I see, Rod. Uh, are you proud of that? And, of course, the answer is no. Uh, and I think that's what leads to change is the ability to ho- have those conversations. Can you, is there a way you can make difficult conversations less difficult? Uh, for sure. There's certainly, if we looked at a spectrum between, you know, um, difficult conversations that have gone well and difficult conversations that have gone poorly, I strongly suspect we'd see some principles. Um, one of the things I think that we sometimes forget is how to make conversation a natural part of our culture. We often start off with leaders as the trigger is, oh, you know, Rod's not performing. I need to, you know, have a a conversation with him, but because I don't have the relationship with him or because the culture isn't there, and I'm, I won't think that consciously, but what happens is I then think to myself, oh, but, you know, he's going to respond like this and it all get very icky and it all be, we, we do this and we tell ourselves the story. And I think sometimes what's missing is that we haven't done some work up front to set expectations about the sort of place that we want to work. And I strongly suspect that the sort of place that most people want to work is the place where we are able to have the conversations that we need to have. Um, And so there's some work there around creating a culture um, and setting the expectation that having conversations about performance is part and parcel of working here. And one of the enemies of doing that was, is, of course, uh, performance appraisal systems. Because mm. what performance appraisal systems do is, of course, they say you need to talk to your team members at least twice a year. And so what happens is a lot of managers go, great, I'll do that twice a year. And if you're only talking to your team members twice or three times, four times, five times, six times a year about their performance, that is not sufficient. Mm. It's not sufficient. We need to be open to the possibility that conversations about performance are something that our team members actually want and desire and enjoy. Because I think it's all very easy for leaders to hold this story in their head that conversations about performance um, is something to be, again, that is is unpleasant. They don't want it. I don't want to do it. And if I tell myself that story, then I find a reluctant energy, yes. <laughs> you know, and if I'm reluctant, I'm not going to do it. I mean, you know, if you think about Olympic level performers, even, you know, good quality sports people, 
the conversation about performance is happening all of the time. Oh. Happening as that, not just on the field, but off the field, at halftime, at training. Conversations about performance are happening constantly, and that's why they are top performing sports people. There's a this growing awareness about the complexity of everything that we do, particularly as leaders. The more senior you get, the more complex you know challenges are that you're working on. Um, and I think uh, as we deal with more and more complex issues, one of the key things is to be able to get data on performance quickly, regularly, um, and cleanly. You know, if, if we leave it until 12 months before we measure how we're going, we're going to be, we could be 12 months off track. Why is engagement so important should you know in an, in a world and in um business where it's all about meeting a financial number shouldn't we focus more on outputs kpis deadlines performance measures why, why is engagement so important yeah good question I, i'm i'm certainly loath to say that there's an argument to say that we should shouldn't not be focusing on outputs. I mean, we've just sort of explored the importance of getting feedback and outputs are a great way of uh, getting feedback. I think what happens sometimes in organisations is we have this pendulum swinging from one extreme to the other. Maybe it's more a, uh, more a double helix sort of thing than a pendulum because it's like a um, classic example of this is uh, um, centralisation to decentralisation. You know, most leaders have been around long enough to know that organisations, they go, they go, okay, first of all, we need to centralise because we've got an opportunity to consolidate here and to get clear about standards. And then they go, oh, we've done that to death, haven't we? Okay, now we need to decentralise and give some of the branches back the opportunity to take control. And, and we shift between the two, right? I think there's probably something similar happening with inputs and outputs. I suspect that we have swung the pendulum about as far as you can towards outputs. Um, it's all about KPIs, deadlines, EBITDA, profitability, et cetera, et cetera. And I worry that what we may have missed in this or what we will find is that there is value that we've lost in recognising that the ends does not justify the means. You know, because the ends, if you end up with only measuring outputs, then that ends in tears, right? <laughs> Just talk to Enron, pyramid schemes, banking royal commissions come to mind. Um, uh, clients in the healthcare industry, there was a, a report called the Garling Report, which is um, basically some patients lost their lives in hospitals and um, the Garling report suggests that that was in no small part to a poor culture and an inability to have the conversations that we need to have. So there's a classic example of us ignoring inputs. Um, so, you know, the case for focusing on engagement and inputs, I think is twofold. First of all, it's data-driven. So what we now know from literally decades of data that we've collected through engagement surveys is that there's a correlation between engagement and performance. That's been replicated through many studies. 
um, you you do not get, or it's it's the exception that you get an engaged team producing terrible results, and it's the exception that you, you get a disengaged team producing excellent results. The overwhelming correlation is that engagement and performance are correlated. Firstly, so there's the data. Secondly, I think the second part of the case is just, you know, intuitive anecdotal experience. As a team member, um, think about the times that you've been disengaged and think about the effect that has on your performance. Mm. Um, Think about the times you've been engaged and how when you've been engaged, you have chosen to expend discretionary effort in the pursuit of the organisation's or the team's goals. So I think intuitively we know this from our own experience as well as the data. So if I'm a leader and I know all that, yeah, but I'm busy, but there's a lot going on, Rod, and I've got to get the work out the door, how do I make time to engage my team? Because it's something I really want to do, but sometimes just finding the time either to have those conversations is just really hard. Yeah, look, I so get that. And, um, uh, you know, part of me goes, I get it. I really do. I feel the same myself. There are times when you just go, I know I should be making that phone call or I should be having that conversation. But, you know, just completing this would just seem so much more important. And if I'm at least conscious of that decision, not being conscious of what it is that you are saying no to and how that can often be putting it off to a later date and causing you more friction in the longer term. I believe, I firmly believe that the good leaders, the ones that get the most out of us that we love working with are the ones who don't deprioritize that as often as the others. The ones that we are less likely to be engaged with are the ones who go who use that argument all the time. But Rod, I've got to get this done. I've got operational issues and challenges, uh, the things I've got to fix. Uh, they would prioritise those things. Uh, I think it's the the good leaders who recognise the importance of this. I, I'm an introvert. That's my kind of diagnosis from a personality type, yeah? So I sometimes find engagement difficult from the point since it takes me a lot of energy. Like, I know it's important. So what are your tips for those of us who aren't naturally good in the space? We want to do it and we know it's important, but it's not our preferred way of working. Well, first of all, um, the first thing that I noticed just as you're talking there, Ange, with all due respect, is that you're telling yourself a story, which may be true, but is unhelpful. It's probably so a good excuse too. It's a damn good excuse and it feels good and, it, mm. and, and I get to justify it and feel righteous about it and I get to identify with a group of people and it's not helpful. So if as a leader I'm telling myself, oh, I really got to have that conversation with Ange, but, oh, it's, you know, it's so draining. And if I tell myself that, then I find a certain energy and that energy will be defensive, passive-aggressive, shut down. If I am feeling defensive, passive-aggressive and shut down, then I tend to do certain things. I tend to be not fully present. I tend to do things like um, look at my phone, check my emails, um, be thinking about what else I should be doing. When I do those things, you, you can tell when I'm not fully present. 
and so I don't get the results I should be getting. I think that's an unhelpful story. I think a more helpful story is something like, I need to have this conversation because something's going on. And by having this conversation, I need to make this work. And this conversation is necessary to make this work. And if I tell myself that, then I find an energy that is more committed, engaged, curious. When I'm being committed, engaged, and curious, I tend to do different things. I tend to ask questions. I listen. I get involved. I'm more playful. When I do those things, I tend to get better results out of the conversation. I understand that, that you know, we could have the debate about introversion, extroversion, task-focused versus people-focused is another one that often comes up. And I'm not sure that it helps me is the first thing that I would say to that. So the tip there is notice your own story. Is your story going to make engaging with your team members more difficult than it needs to be? would be the tip there. If I'm a leader and I work on my engagement, how will it feel? How will I know that it's actually helping improve performance if I do stop focusing on task and take the time to engage more in conversation around performance, but not just performance, Rod, yeah, you've got to be engaged too with what's going on holistically with your people. Um, Or if I stop saying I'm an introvert, I'm going to put off having the conversation or the one-on-one, how will I know over the course of time that that's working for me? Um, I reckon the, the clearest way is how are your team members showing up? How are the people around you? What energy do they bring to conversations with you, to your work, to their work? You know, are they being anxious, angry, worried, bored, confused, apathetic, fearful, righteous? You know, if they're showing up with these sorts of energies, then, you know, clearly someone who's being anxious, angry, worried is not going to perform as well. When you see someone showing up and they are curious, engaged and present, you you can be pretty sure that they're going to get better results. So I think how will you know one very quick way is going to be to notice how are your team members showing up? What energy are they bringing? And then I'm tipping, it's very hard to say because that person had that change in energy. We now have that EBITDA. (laughs) You know, that's, of course, a ridiculous argument. Nonetheless, I think you can pretty well tell as a, as a leader that they're going to have an effect. If you've got a team member that's rocking up and they're present, engaged and focused, they're going to do a better job than the same team member who may turn up the next day confused, apathetic or fearful. Does engagement work for everyone? Because I've had employees who have worked for me, people have worked for me, good, good performers, yeah, no problem, not problem employees. But they've literally said, I just want to come in, I just want to do my job, and then I want to go home. That for them is satisfaction. I I think the question there is what are they engaging with? What are they committed to? I think you can be committed to multiple things. You might be committed to the purpose of the organisation. You may not be. You might be committed to your actual task. You might be committed to your boss. You might be committed to helping customers. 
I think you can be committed to different things. So when I hear a team member say, I just want to come in, do my job, and you say in the same breath, those you've got examples of people like that working really well, then I would say that person is engaged when they are at work. Talk to me about the eight conversations. What are eight conversations? Sounds like a lot of conversations to me. It does, it does. And, and um, the key thing to remember with these is that I think when I first came across these, you're right, in my head it was like, oh, crikey, what? You want me to have eight different conversations with each team member? And in your head you sort of do the maths of each conversation is one hour, so therefore eight hours with, oh, you've got to be kidding me, too hard. But, of course, it's not that at all. These can be corridor conversations. They can be conversations in the moment. They can be a conversation that lasts 30 seconds. And the suggestion is that these are the sorts of conversations that leaders would have that would dramatically increase the likelihood that we have people who are engaged. So what they are, first one is conversation to build relationships. So we hold the belief that all leadership conversations go better if we have a human connection first. If we have a good human connection, I can go up to you, Ange, and I can go, dead set, Ange, what on earth were you thinking? And you go, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, look, I'll fix it. But if we don't have a good relationship, then I start to second guess myself and go, oh, how am I going to go? How, what, how do I say this? How do I structure this conversation? I have all those things. So the first conversation is to the conversation to create a human connection where there is no other agenda in this conversation other than to connect with you as a human being. So it might be, you know, talking to you about your running, mm. just asking you honest questions to be curious about what, what it is that you find enjoyable in your running and how your running's going, how far you go and how long does it take you and create that connection. Once we've created a connection, people are then ready to be led <laughs> or, you know, they're more likely to follow if they've got a connection with the person who's leading. So the second conversation is the conversation to connect to purpose, vision and strategy. Um, and this is the where we talk about where we're headed as a team, as an organisation. Uh, and there's a real skill in being able to do this well. What, what doesn't work with this conversation is the slide deck, you know, where we've got loads of bullet points and loads of graphs and all that sort of thing. That tends to appeal to the intellect. This is more a conversation that we need to really get people in the heart, a conversation where we want people to connect to the purpose of the organisation. We do this because this is important work, you know. We do stuff that really contributes. It's, it's got to have that edge to it. Next conversation is a conversation to define and align goals. Now, this is a linked conversation to the one to connect to purpose, but the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they often think that they've, they've talked about goals and they think they've done it all. But there's a big difference between what, our role is in the purpose and the actual purpose, vision and strategy. And if we only talk about goals, then what we run the risk of is we run the risk of people becoming overwhelmed because there's unlimited goals, but there's only one purpose. But if we can see that the goals that we've got lead us towards the purpose, then that gives us the sense of we're contributing. We're part of something bigger. And that's really the, the connection to purpose that will engage people. Goals only engage people so far. Purpose is more likely to engage people for a lot longer. 
Fourth conversation is the conversation to ensure accountability has been taken and autonomy has been given. And we're keen to identify that there's a difference there between you can't give accountability, you can't force someone to take accountability. You know when you're on the hook for something, you feel it, right? You go, oh, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's up to me. So there's there's something there about having that conversation where we can get people to the point where they're going, okay, I, I can see what, how others are depending on me to do that. The next conversation is the conversation to challenge and support, coach and develop. And the, the thing with this one is that initially it seems like the words challenge and support are at the opposite ends of the same spectrum. And some people have a preference as leaders to support. Some people have a preference as leaders to challenge. If you only support, then we're not growing. And if you only challenge, we burn people out. The thing for us as leaders here is to be able to do both, to be able to both challenge and support. There's a conversation about rewarding and recognising uncontaminated positive regard is what we talk about here. What a lot of people do is they contaminate their positive feedback. So they say things like, oh, you did a really good job, Ange. There's just 14 things I want to talk to you about and there you've lost it all. Or we contaminate it with the future. So what we do there is we say something like, great, great, good job, well done, everyone. All right, what's next? And what we're saying with this conversation is to uncontaminate that positive regard. So this conversation is purely about let's stop and celebrate the success and our achievement and let's talk about that without talking about anything else. There's a conversation to complete, review, and learn. And again, a lot of managers don't find the time for this. A lot of leaders don't find the time for this. It's This is one of the ones that easily gets shelved. Uh, and if we shelve this, then we don't grow and develop. And if we're not growing and developing, then chances are our team and our organisation is not growing and developing. And so there's a really important practice there of being able to say, okay, now that we've arrived at this point in the cycle, the project, whatever it is, let's review. And there's lots of ways to do that. You know, what's good, what's tricky, what's different, um, what, so what, now what. You know, there's loads of those things that you can use. But again, one of the differences between a, an average leader and an excellent leader, I would suggest, is that the excellent leader actually takes time out to shine a light on what it is that we're learning. Uh, and then the final conversation is the conversation to prepare people for the future. And if you don't have this conversation, then you get blindsided. Things happen that we weren't ready for. Um, you increase the likelihood that people are going to whinge and moan about change because they didn't see it coming. Whereas if we talk about, look, you know, there's lots of things on the boil at the moment and what could happen is... You know, we may get a free trade agreement with, um, with Europe. And if that happens, then that is really going to change our delivery and our logistics. And so we need to be ready for that possibility. Um, if we have had that conversation, then if that does happen, we're readier for it. We're, we're more prepared. So that's a lot of talking, but there's, there's the eight conversations and we firmly believe that, you know, if any one of those eight conversations is missing, you, you will get less engagement. I'm curious, after you've established the human connection and it's somewhat related to the last year of the way that we've all had to work remotely, but also the digital age, 
if I've got the human connection, can I have a, one of the eight conversations with you by text message? I think if you've established that up front, that that's, I think a lot of the time uh, when working with um, with teams, particularly leadership teams, where things can go astray is when we haven't agreed on um, how we prefer to communicate. Mm. So, for example, um, the slowest way to get hold of me <laughs> is email. I am not proud to say. Um, it's because you get, you know, literally hundreds in a day and it's very difficult to keep up the quickest way to get hold of me is text message Mm. and in the middle is voice message Um, and if we're clear about that up front uh, and if we've worked that out and we've said that explicitly then I suspect yes that those conversations could largely work and if it wasn't working then we could send text message saying we need to catch up I think what's increasingly happening too is that you've got uh, teams that are spread around the globe. You can kick something off here in Sydney in the morning and finish it in the afternoon and then leave it with someone who's in India and they'll pick it up and they'll run with it all day and they'll leave it for someone in the UK who'll pick up with it. And by the time you wake up tomorrow morning, it's done, right? And the, the digital tools that help with those, loads of those, you know, there's Slack, there's, there's plenty of systems. Uh, so I suspect you're right. I think we're increasing our ability to be able to communicate over those. If you only relied on the digital, I suspect you'd run into problems pretty quick. What could I expect if I didn't consciously think about this and having the conversations? And I have to admit, Rob, that sometimes I do think, and it's somewhat my preparation, though, that if I have to give someone some feedback, I like to, I I probably think about it a bit too much. So what would happen if I didn't think about it, I suppose, is my question, if I just innately did it? Well, you know, if you didn't think about it consciously, then you would probably get it right some of the time and you would probably get it wrong some of the time, I suspect, Ange. (laughs) I think the benefit of, you know, most of uh, um, reading and learning and finding labels for things is that often what these things do, like the eight conversations, is they give us a way of labelling what we know we do when we do things well and so that label helps us do it more often more consciously so if you stopped thinking about it consciously then I suspect you would get less good results for if you excuse the dreadful English Mm. Mm. (laughs) Um, so I think there's something there about the more conscious we are about it the more likely we are to actually do it and to do it to the best capacity possible. You know, the human connection that you talked about, if I establish with a human connection with you, for example, and then I go, right, I've done that, I don't have to engage with you on a human level anymore, that's not correct, is it? That is an ongoing piece of work that you need to do with someone. What's that um, law of physics? Nature abhors a vacuum right? And I think our our mind is the same. You know, if I'm not getting any regular human input from from you as my boss, Ange, then I start to make stuff up in my head in the vacuum. And that stuff is rarely helpful. It's Mm -hmm. most likely going to be unhelpful. 
So what this identifies, thank you, Ange, is that these things, these conversations are ongoing. It's not something that you just do once a year like a performance appraisal process might suggest. <laughs> it's something that needs to happen regularly, consciously, and it's not like you do a ticker box. It's not like you go through them. One of the things that we do sometimes with people is we ask them to think about their team members and we ask them to think about when they're not being engaged, how are they being? How are they showing up? Um, and, you know, you get words like righteous, exhausted, confused, um, relaxed, uh, uh, angry, you know, these sorts of words. And, and that's there's some hints in there as to which conversation is going to be most helpful to have with that person. And yes, if unsure, I'd say start with conversation one. If you're not sure which conversation to have, go back to the conversation to build relationship and start from there. What makes a good leader? Two things come immediately to mind for me is self-awareness and interpersonal awareness um, would be a great place to start. And I think one of the mistakes that we might make in our answer to what makes a good leader is that we might put too much emphasis on the individual and their skills and their abilities. And I think sometimes what we miss in the answer to that question is timing, context, so you've probably got some examples and I've, I've spoken to a number of my clients who have all said that with this COVID thing, they've seen people show leadership that they did not expect and they've seen people in leadership positions not rise to the challenge. So I strongly suspect that part of what makes a good leader is external to them as well as being internal to them. What's that saying? Some leaders are born, some are, some have it thrust upon them and some are maids. Yeah. I, I suspect that all three of those are true. And I suppose, though, as a leader, though, seeking feedback is really important on how you're showing up or what works for an individual or a team and continuing to, I suppose, I would say be in a bit of a continuous learning journey in your own right or a continuous improvement journey. Yeah, well, there you go. There's there's a big box to tick on the list of how to be a really good leader. You know, an organisation cannot grow, a team cannot grow beyond the level of its leadership. If you've stopped growing, then everyone around you is probably stopped growing as well if you're the leader. Mm. Um, and, and feedback is an integral part of growth. I'm a big fan of the, um, the the easy daily practice, without a doubt. A number of years ago, I was doing some work for a pharmaceutical client. We got a group of um, GPs together in a room, and it was about we were talking about um, how do you change behaviour in 15 minutes. These doctors had uh, an interest in um, diabetes. A large percentage of the patients that were presenting to them were presenting with um, various different levels of diabetes. And, of course, that's in large part a behavioural issue. It's what we eat. It's how much we move. It's, you know, that sort of thing. First of all, we asked them to build a list. What do you suspect works based on your experience? You're in a far better position than I am to know what works in 15 minutes. We got three groups. One group was... Um, they were big fans of the idea of the scare tactics. Let's show them um, paraphernalia that we have that shows what happens when you have full-blown diabetes, what your lifestyle is going to be like, all that sort of thing. Let's use the scare tactics. That was group one. Group two was the buddy system. They were, you know, what works really well is when they've got someone close to them who's monitoring them and who's across what's happening as well. And so we try and get two people together in the um, 
uh, in the doctor's surgery at the same time to talk about what's going on. They were the buddy system. The third group were the daily practice group, and they suspected that often the mistake that we make as GPs is that we give people a laundry list of things to do. What I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to buy some Lycra. I want you to join a gym. I want you to stop eating the muffins. I want you to eat mandarins. You know, they were doing that sort of thing. And, of course, it's overwhelming, whereas if we just say, just do one thing and let's see how we go with that. When the three groups came back, the, the group that had done the daily practice were really quite excited. Um, they believed that they got, you know, we reckoned it was somewhere around the 10 to 15% improvement mark mm. in um, uh, application, which is quite remarkable uh, at the GP level, quite remarkable in anything medically. Um, and they, what they had done is they had said to their um, patients, what we want you to do is each day is we, we just want you to get up from your desk and walk around the block. All right, that's all you have to do. And because it was so easy and it was each day, what they found is this ripple effect. Some of them found a, a percentage, a notable percentage, had this ripple effect. Were patients who came back and said, you're not going to believe it, Doc, but I've been doing that walk around the block thing. And, and interesting things happen. When I come back to the office, I don't take the lift. I've been taking the stairs, right? And then for more, my morning teas, I've been eating the mandarin, not the muffin. And you're not going to believe it. I've joined a gym, <laughs> you yeah. know. There's this ripple effect. Yeah. So I'm a real big fan now, and we do this quite a lot when we work with leaders and teams, is we ask people, don't try and change the world. Just pick one habit that you can replicate each day and let's see where it leads and let's regroup in a few weeks and talk about what you've learned. want to talk about because we've touched on it and as I said I'm I am really passionate about it this idea around using physical I say physical exercise but then I think that could be a little bit limiting to some people so tell us about what you do is that important to you and what do you do to kind of reset the mind um, and keep yourself kind of performing at your best uh, one of the things that um, I really love is I still play soccer, football. <laughs> and um, I love it because, first of all, it's physical, you're moving, so you've got the whole physical element of it there. But also I like the community element of it. You know, I mix with a group of people that I might not necessarily see through work channels, but they're local and so it's a, it's a local community and that adds an element as well, um, which I really enjoy. Um, um, I also like to try and, um, I mean, you're talking about physically, but th there's also something there about um, pushing myself a little bit mentally. I like languages, so I'm currently learning German and I've been doing it now for, I'm going to say about 500 and something days. I just hit the 500 day wow. mark. Um, yeah, so you, after a while you sort of go, oh, I can actually understand and speak a bit now. That's, you know, at, at first you're s starting really slowly and staggering along, but after a while you start to go, oh, I'm, I'm watching this SBS film and I understand a percentage of wow. what they're saying. That's uh, so, impressive. Yeah, That's I think that uh, there's something very helpful about, again, we're coming back to this idea of having more in your life than just work. Yes. Exactly. 
Agree. And that was only in, actually in this conversation did it dawn on me when I'm talking to people, I put the emphasis on physical exercise, but that's quite limiting. Yeah, it's what do you do outside of work that um, refreshes you but invigorates you to, so when you go back to work, you're feeling engaged and you want to be there, yeah, because it brings a different aspect to your life. Refreshes, invigorates, recharges and stretches you in a different way. Exactly. Um, my final question for you, uh, this is a podcast and podcasts are a great way to learn. Are you a podcast fan? And if so, are there any good podcasts you'd recommend? One that I've um, been listening to for quite some time now and I really um, get a lot out of is the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris. He has some fantastic guests, you know, some of my favourite writers, thinkers and authors and, you know, having Sam and these other people chatting away in a conversation is just, you know, brain explosion after brain explosion. One that I really like is um, In Our Time, uh, which is a BBC Radio 4 um, podcast. And uh, it's um, Melvin Bragg and he interviews, uh, you know, professors of a particular topic. And he'll have a topic like the history of tea. And at first you think, oh, God, that sounds boring but then they start talking about it and it is just so enlightening insightful informative yeah love it really strongly recommend in our time rod matthews thank you so much for joining us on accolades realizing your potential podcast series thanks edge it was an absolute pleasure it really was Well, that brings a close to my conversation with Rod. There were some really great messages in that conversation. And for me, the things I'm going to think about are how disengagement can impact performance and how engagement drives performance and discretionary effort. What stories am I telling myself that may be unhelpful? Everyone has their something. And as a leader, I don't have to do it all. Focus on one thing and get good at that before moving to the next. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you found it interesting and it sparked your curiosity to find out more. We have plenty of materials and resources to support this episode, so remember to check the show notes. For more leadership content, subscribe to the podcast and follow Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. These podcasts would not be possible without a super production team. Big thanks to the team at Martino Consulting for producing this series of Realising Your Potential. Mm-hmm.